Hi, I'm Graham Smith. I'm the chair of the SOGC's Academic Council, as well as the head of obstetrics and gynecology at Queen's University. We're doing this podcast to facilitate discussions on a variety of topics pertaining to the fields of obstetrics and gynecology in Canada and globally. This podcast is for you if you're a medical professional or if you're interested in topics relating to women's health. Our guest today is Dr. Ashley Waddington. Dr. Waddington is an assistant professor in the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Queen's University. Dr. Waddington's clinical practice and research focuses on complicated contraceptive cases, abortion care and access, adolescent gynecology, early pregnancy complications, patient safety and quality improvement, and germane to the topic today, transgender health. Ashley, Welcome to the SOGC's Women's Health Podcast, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us about this very important topic. It's a pleasure to be here. Gender influences people's experience of access to healthcare, and as a starting point, what is gender? Um, So I think in order to answer that question, because it's not as straightforward as one might hope, um, it's important to define what is sex, because that's a different concept from gender. So sex generally refers to a biological state of being. So for example, what chromosomes a person is born with, what external or internal genitalia they're born with, and what secondary sexual characteristics develop at puberty. When we're discussing sex and gender, we often refer to one's sex assigned at birth uh, because as we both know as obstetricians, uh, we often describe newborns or even fetuses before birth as male or female based on the external genitalia that they have at the time of birth or even before birth when they're seen on ultrasound. Uh, But gender is a different concept from sex assigned at birth. And um, that's important to this discussion today to sort of keep those two things uh, as related but separate concepts. So gender is the socially constructed roles and behaviors that a society typically associates with males and females. So for example, we can all think of things that our society has decided are either masculine or feminine, such as the construct that female people wear dresses, but male people do not. But there's no rational reason that that has to be true. So there's nothing about a person's biology or the shape or form of their body or what internal or external genitalia they have that defines what clothing they can or should wear or not wear. Um, But we as a society have sort of made choices that direct um, those choices or or suggest that one thing is masculine or feminine and another thing is not. So gender is a way in our society that we categorize people uh, and many, probably most uh, people express their gender in a way that fits into a pretty binary definition of gender, which would be male or female. Uh, But not all people do. Some people live and express their gender as something uh, in between the binary definition or even entirely outside of the gender binary. Uh, So gender is a little bit more of a wider concept than simply male or female and and separate from the concept of sex or biology. I also like to point out, too, in discussing these uh, words in this language, that sex and gender are also different concepts from sexual or romantic orientation. So your sex assigned at birth or your gender do not dictate who you're sexually or romantically attracted to or who you will wish to engage in sexual or romantic relationships with or what types of sexual activities you'll enjoy or wish to engage in. And so people sometimes um, mix up those concepts as well and uh, presume that they know based on their understanding of what somebody's sex or gender is, that they also understand um, what that person's sexual orientation is or what types of sexual activity that person may wish to engage in. But those are completely separate ideas. Um, And so people 
can choose for themselves how they define and live in their gender and also what types of relationships and what types of sexual activity they want to be involved in. And none of that is really dictated by uh, their sex assigned at birth or their biological sex. So I sometimes find the language uh, confusing. I go to talks uh, and I come away thinking, okay, I'm, I'm a cis male heterosexual, I think. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk about the, the language? I mean, cis yeah, and trans sounds like an organic chemistry course. Yeah, anybody who's taken organic chemistry will be familiar with those terms. Um, so cis uh, generally means, uh, in organic chemistry at least, on the same side of. Um, and so if somebody is sex assigned at birth is congruent with their gender identity, um, then we call them cisgender. So um, you might define yourself as a cisgender man because your uh, sex assigned at birth is congruent with your gender uh, as you live and express it. Um, trans in organic chemistry and in other areas means opposite to you or on the other side of. And so a transgender individual is somebody whose sex assigned at birth is not the same as the gender that they currently uh, live or express themselves in. And so uh, if we talk about a transgender man, that is typically somebody who was assigned female at birth, but is now a man uh, and, and lives their life uh, in a male gender role. Um, but it's important to recognize that even that continues to sort of push the idea that gender is a binary uh, concept. And gender is not necessarily binary. So some people define and live in their gender uh, somewhere in between the spectrum of male to female or even outside of that spectrum entirely and, and they feel that how they live in and express their gender is just not related to those concepts of male and female and they sort of um, don't necessarily agree with the gender constructs that we've developed in our society around those um, terms male and female. I know a lot of people now use pronouns, you know, he, him, she, her, they. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so when people decide sort of how they want to live and express their gender, one of the things that they may choose to do is um, ask to be addressed by a different pronoun that's more congruent with the gender that they're living in. And so, um, you know, if you are a transgender person, you most likely would wish to be addressed by the pronouns that are consistent with your gender. So that may be he or him or she or her. Um, if you're a cisgender person, similar idea. But if you're somebody who is gender non-binary or who sort of doesn't express their gender in a binary definition, um, then you may wish to be addressed by a non-binary pronoun like they or them. Uh, some people have used uh, uh, pronouns like they and, and then. Uh, and so people, uh, that's again, one of the ways that we enforce gender in our society is by addressing people um, by, by binary pronouns. Um, and so some people may choose to change the pronouns that they wish to be addressed by to be more congruent with the gender that they're living in. In 2017, you started a clinic here in Kingston uh, for transgender patients. And both in the hospital and now it's transitioned uh, to a clinic outside of the hospital. What inspired you to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, it was kind of a, a confluence of things that came together all around the same time. So uh, as you know, my main focus in gynecology is actually as a contraception expert and a family planning expert. And so I uh, spend a lot of my clinical time uh, working with people uh, for managing their contraceptive needs as well as menstrual management, which often goes hand in hand. And I started to notice that I was getting an increasing number of referrals to my contraception clinic 
for uh, gender diverse individuals and particularly trans masculine people who were looking to use contraceptive products to suppress their menstruation because menstruation can be quite uh, distressing or dysphoric for um, people who don't identify as women. Um, and so I was getting more and more of those referrals and we were just kind of fitting them into the contraception clinic, but recognizing that there were other needs that these patients had that uh, weren't always being addressed. And so we were really only focused on managing menstruation for them, but you know, not necessarily providing them with other um, care related to their gender. Um, around the same time, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Bob Reed was retiring and he was a reproductive endocrinologist and had been kind of quietly um, managing some transgender patients through his practice and prescribing hormones to them. It, it was never sort of a widely advertised service that he offered, but he had just throughout his uh, endocrinology career sort of had some patients who, who required that care. And as he was approaching retirement, he was looking for somebody uh, in our department who would be able to take on that aspect of his practice. And I thought, well, that seemed like something that I would be interested in learning about. Uh, and so I was happy to do that. And so those two things sort of came together to help me recognize there was a need for a gender specific clinic. Um, and then around the same time, sort of organically, um, a group of healthcare providers, patient advocates and patients themselves uh, started to form in the Kingston area. We called our house the Trans Health Connectors. And so we were meeting a few times a year and sort of trying to feel out what services were already available in Kingston, who was providing care, what services were lacking, um, what opportunities were there for us to be able to provide better care for um, gender diverse people in the community. And I felt with the support of that group and also the acknowledged need for a gender specific clinic, um, that that might be something that I could try to tackle. Um, and so I uh, got a couple of other healthcare providers uh, involved. So I had uh, two other physicians who were helping me with the clinic at the beginning. Um, and we did some training. So there's an excellent resource available in Ontario called Rainbow Health Ontario. And they uh, provide um, training sessions for healthcare providers um, on a variety of aspects of providing care to gender diverse individuals. So I did a couple of training um, days with them. And then we launched the clinic in July of 2017. And uh, we were really pleased with how it went. Um, and we were quite happy that there was a lot of interest. Uh, but very quickly, we realized that there was actually uh, more demand than what we could meet. So we sort of uh, all the, the three of us physicians who were working in the clinic already had full time practices, but we thought this was something we could commit sort of a day a month to. Um, but quickly, our wait list became unmanageable. So patients were you know, waiting for nine to 12 months to be able to get into the clinic. Um, and, and none of us had any additional room in our schedule to sort of expand that aspect of our practice. Um, and so um, I was very lucky to connect with some uh, other advocates uh, for transgender care. Um, and we approached the LINS, the Local Health Integration Network, um, to request funding for a full-time clinic that would be staffed by a nurse practitioner, um, recognizing that there was enough demand that, that would support the need for a full-time clinic. And we were very lucky to receive that funding. And so that clinic got started approximately a year uh, after my clinic got started um, and has been uh, operating ever since and providing excellent care to gender diverse people in our community. Yeah, you and I have talked about this before, and I, I would say that, uh, you know, one of your greatest attributes is that you are an advocate uh, <laughs> and certainly advocate or advocating for access to appropriate care, whether it's the transgender health clinic or access to abortion services or contraception or whatnot. Um, so when you started the clinic, 
there seem to be a lot of people, I guess, coming out of the woodwork who are interested in, um, you know, health services. Uh, and and what's happened over the last, like, what, what have you found over the last four years that the clinic's been running? Yeah, so there continues to be a high demand um, for this care. Um, one of the things we always wanted to do, um, both when I established my clinic and then when we expanded it out to the community-based clinic, um, is to make this care accessible to patients, but also to help educate other healthcare providers in our community to provide this care. So we would sort of joke that we were trying to put ourselves out of business because there's no reason, like providing gender affirming care is actually not that complex. It's, it's relatively straightforward in most cases. Um, and so there's no reason that this can't be something that can be done by a primary care provider, a family physician, nurse practitioner, um, that kind of thing. And so, um, We've been continuing to try to provide education around, um, you know, providing gender affirming care and continue to provide uh, patient care, of course. Um, my two collaborators, one of them <laughs> unfortunately had an excellent opportunity to go and work in another community. And so she took that opportunity. So she's not working with me anymore, um, but she's continuing to provide gender affirming care in another community. Um, and then my other collaborator actually is working at the community health center and they think still providing gender affirming care, but not through my uh, specific clinic. Um, so the majority of care right now is going through the community based clinic. There's also a healthcare provider at the Queens family health team who has established a transgender clinic, um, who is seeing a lot of patients there as well. Um, and then my clinic still exists. And so we're, we sort of work collaboratively. We will share referrals. So if I get a referral that looks like it would be better um, addressed by, by somebody at one of the other two clinics, then I will redirect the referral to, to one of those two care providers. Um, and likewise, if they think it's something that would be better addressed in my clinic, then, then they'll send them my way as well. Uh, and so I'm seeing a little bit more uh, complex medical needs uh, patients and um, pre and post-op uh, surgical care. So although we don't provide uh, the majority of gender affirming surgeries here in Kingston, with the exception of gender affirming hysterectomy, um, if people have gone and had gender affirming surgery in another community, most often in Montreal, uh, realistically, uh, but they're having issues in their post-op period and they need to see somebody, then I will see those patients. So if somebody's interested in setting up such a clinic, you know, whether they're an obstetrician gynecologist or family doctor or nurse practitioner, you know, whomever, what's required? Who, who, who works at these clinics? Yeah, so there's no specific requirement in terms of the type of healthcare provider that you need to be. Um, clearly, you're going to need to get some kind of education to help you feel comfortable with the sort of nuances and what the, the uh, issues are that, that you'll need to assist your patients with. So again, I strongly encourage uh, anybody in Ontario to think about taking one of the Rainbow Health Ontario courses. But there are other organizations. So there's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. There's the Canadian Professional Association for Transgender Health. Uh, there's a lot of good work going on on the West Coast, uh, in BC in particular. Uh, and so try and find out locally where you work, um, what might be available to you um, in terms of improving your, your knowledge and skills in providing this type of care. Um, it's really important. So you need to understand the social context, obviously, that this care takes place in. And so it can be very, very helpful if you have access to um, either a mental health care provider or social work. Um, so our community-based clinic has a social worker associated with it. Um, and that could be very helpful as well, because as you can imagine, um, trans and gender uh, diverse patients don't only require medical care, they often require a lot of social support as well. 
Um, and so be prepared for that in some way. So if that's not something you can do, then try to feel out what resources are available in your community. Um, and then it's very important to understand in your context and where you're working, what some of the sort of legal requirements are. Unfortunately, there remains a lot of gatekeeping in accessing gender affirming care. Uh, and so there will be specific pathways, for example, um, if somebody wishes to pursue gender affirming surgery, um, in order to obtain funding for that, there may be different pathways in Ontario. It requires, um, you know, specific forms to be filled out and submitted to OHIP to get funding approval prior to surgery. Um, and so you just need to know how to navigate some of those uh, processes and those will likely be different from province to province. Um, and then uh, also understanding what your role as a healthcare provider might be in helping patients navigate social and legal transition as well. So again, lots of gatekeeping, unfortunately, for gender diverse people uh, trying to access their needs. And so one example would be if somebody wants to change their gender identifier on their legal documentation, like their uh, passport or their health card, uh, they require a letter from a doctor that says that that's something that they should be allowed to do. Um, and so that's not a difficult thing to do. I have a form letter. It's very easy for me to write that letter, um, but you just need to know what those processes are so you can help your patients navigate those systems. So I know when you started this clinic at the Kingston Health Science Center and, and certainly with the, uh, the community clinic now, um, you were asked by a number of different departments to give talks, uh, you know, on, on the whole transgender health thing. Has, have you seen a broad acceptance of, of the whole transgender health issue? Yeah, you know, what's been actually so life affirming for me is the interest in this. So um, I think starting out and recognizing many of the challenges and, and barriers that gender diverse people um, encounter when trying to access healthcare. Uh, my assumption was that a lot of that was because people didn't care or they were actually transphobic or sort of actively uh, would refuse to or would not be interested in uh, providing healthcare to uh, gender diverse individuals. And while that does exist for sure, and I don't want to minimize the fact that some uh, gender diverse people have encountered very negative um, encounters within the healthcare system, my experience as a healthcare provider has been that the majority of other healthcare providers that I encounter want to do the right thing for their gender diverse patients. They just don't know and they're afraid of doing it wrong. So um, there's a lot of appetite for learning, even just sort of language and, and, and making sure you're using the right terminology. And what can I do to make my office or my workspace more welcoming to people who are gender diverse? Like, are there things that I'm doing without recognizing that I'm doing them that are uh, turning away patients or making them feel unwelcome in my in my workspace? So there's been a lot of appetite. And so it, it actually makes me feel very uh, satisfied and, and very reassured that we're moving in the right direction in the healthcare system. Uh, unfortunately, there's always going to be people who uh, are transphobic or who are actively going to um, make it more difficult for people to access the care that they need. But my experience has been um, that that's not the majority of healthcare providers. And in fact, the majority really do want to learn about this topic and really want to do the right thing. But they just they just don't know how and they don't know where to access the information. And then they're so afraid of doing it wrong that they almost just kind of like ignore it or try to try just not to get involved uh, because they're afraid that they'll do something and end up offending somebody. Uh, and so it's been a really uh, interesting aspect of my, myself becoming involved in this area of care um, to then become sort of the, the healthcare 
provider trainer <laughs> to other people uh, working in the healthcare field uh, who want to do a better job of this. Um, I, I always feel when I'm talking about this, it's really important to acknowledge in an ideal setting, um, the person doing this would also themselves be a member of the gender diverse community. Um, and so it's always a little bit uncomfortable for me as somebody who identifies as a cisgender uh, heterosexual woman to go out and speak on behalf of my patients. So when it's appropriate, um, I do try to incorporate um, people from the gender diverse community to actually participate in, or at least provide input into teaching materials and that type of thing that I use. Um, but in our community, you know, it's a bit of a limited resource and you, and you can't just make um, patients be advocates for themselves all the time. So as a healthcare provider, um, even though I don't speak from the experience of being a transgender person myself, I can speak from my experience of interacting with my patients and sort of speak to my experience as a healthcare provider who's sort of tried to acquire these skills. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that in a perfect world, <laughs> any teaching or any sort of advocacy that takes place on behalf of transgender people would be informed by and even performed by transgender people themselves. But sometimes realistically, that's not always possible. So what are the challenges associated with, with gender transition and, and how can medical professionals be advocates or allies? That's a big question. <laughs> so there are a lot of challenges. So one thing I think if we're going to talk about transition is to define what that term means. Um, and so transition can be a number of different things if people are trying to uh, transition into either um, the opposite gender and, and, and uh, be a transgender person, uh, or if they're sort of transitioning into being a gender non-binary person or, or somebody who defines themselves as agender their goals are going to be different and some of the steps that they're going to take are going to be different and so there are sort of a few aspects to transitioning um, your gender or going through a gender affirming process and one of them is sort of a social transition so uh, that might include things like coming out to friends and family and, and describing to them what what you're doing and, and and what that feels like for you it may be doing something like changing your name, changing your pronouns, uh, changing the way that you express your gender. So changes in your hairstyle, the clothing that you wear, those kinds of things. Um, and all of that can sort of be considered a social transition. And, and that in itself can be challenging. So as you can imagine, um, there can be pushback from uh, family and friends. Uh, many uh, gender diverse people, unfortunately, um, encounter a lot of uh, negativity from their family and friends, their workplace, their school, that type of thing, uh, even just going through a social transition, let alone uh, going through additional steps uh, for gender affirmation. People may choose to socially transition and that may be as far as it goes. So not everybody's goal is the same. So not everybody wants to like change their name, change their hairstyle, change their gender identifier on their legal documents and then have medical and surgical transition. Like that's not everybody's goal. And so it's important as a healthcare provider to kind of figure out what how people define what their goals are. And so for some people, a social transition is all that they want. Uh, and, and they're quite satisfied if they can sort of live their life in the gender that feels uh, right to them and, and be accepted in their family and their community. Some people will want to go through an additional step of sort of a legal transition. So I mentioned, um, you know, trying to change your gender your gender identifier on your legal documents or, or making a name change, so a legal name change. And so there are steps that they need to go through uh, to do that. Um, like most things associated with, um, you know, anything to do with your driver's license or your passport or whatever, there are numerous um, 
things that need to be navigated, forms that need to be filled out. And as I mentioned, in some cases, they need to find um, a healthcare practitioner who will support them and, and provide documentation that, that says that they can do that. Um, and so that can be challenging. Uh, it can be hard to figure out what are the right forms and, and who do I get to write a supporting letter and, and how do I do all of this? Um, and then there can be costs associated with that as well. Um, in terms of sort of medical or surgical transition, so again, not all people choose this. It kind of depends on what their end goals are, um, but people may choose to go through um, hormone treatments, for example, um, to help them transition their gender. And so that's a challenge because they need to find a healthcare professional who can provide that service to them. Um, and unfortunately, as I was saying, many people, even if they're supportive of their um, transgender patients, they just they're not familiar with it they don't know what what doses and what monitoring is required and sort of what are the hormones that you can use um and so until we have sort of a, a broader um experience and, and knowledge base in the healthcare providers that we're training it's going to remain an obstacle for people to be able to find a healthcare provider who's willing to work with them and provide them with the hormone care that they need um surgical transition is a whole additional step so as i was mentioning um in order to have surgery, at least in Ontario, you need to have a healthcare provider who will um, advocate on your behalf by filling out forms that uh, request funding for surgery. So any type of top surgery, you need to have at least one healthcare provider who will fill out those forms. If you want to have any type of bottom surgery, uh, then you're going to have to have two healthcare providers actually fill out forms on your behalf and write letters in support of your transition. Um, and so navigating the healthcare system to find the people in it who are knowledgeable about that and know what forms need to be filled out and how to, to navigate that process uh, can definitely be a challenge. Uh, and then in Canada, most gender affirming surgery uh, is taking place in Montreal. Uh, there is a clinic that is starting in Toronto and starting to accept referrals. Um, and then there's a few private clinics that people can pay for out of pocket to have gender affirming surgery. Um, but if it's OHIP funded, the, the options are a little bit limited. Uh, and then my understanding is that there is a surgical center in BC, but they accept referrals only from Western Canada. So I have not had any patients who have gone there. So there's a lot of sort of navigation of the healthcare system that's required uh, for people to get the things that they need, uh, even for a legal transition, let alone for a medical or surgical transition. Um, and so it, it, it kind of takes somebody who's an advocate for themselves, somebody who um, has facility with navigating like computer systems and finding information and, and, you know, is capable of sort of getting a referral to somebody if they need it, like those kinds of things that we don't think of um, as actual obstacles just to get to the person that they need, um, the healthcare provider to help them uh, actually initiate any kind of treatment. So we're in the middle of the uh, the 2021 or it's 2020 uh, Tokyo Summer Olympics. And, you know, I, I think of, for instance, Bruce Jenner, incredible athlete a uh, number of years ago. I believe that was at the uh, Montreal Olympics where, you know, he got gold in the, uh, the decathlon uh, and has subsequently uh, transitioned to um, become a transgender woman, Caitlyn Jenner. And do you think that you know, these well-known personalities, is is that helpful to get the whole idea, you know, more widely accepted or, you know, help uh, individuals, you know, who, you know, haven't come out to family or friends or whatnot? Do you think those are, are helpful kind of scenarios or is that just kind of publicity for a, one individual? 
Um, it's a tough question. Uh, so Caitlyn Jenner herself, um, I think, has raised the profile um, or sort of brought some um, awareness of uh, what it means to be transgender. Um, but one of the challenges when people who are already celebrities and particularly people who already have a lot of wealth available to them is that they can make it look a little easier to go through a transition like that than it actually is for the average person, um, which is not to minimize the, the um, courage that it takes um, as, a, as somebody with a high profile um, to come out as transgender and, and to be an advocate. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner is also a bit of a complex one because while she herself is transgender, uh, she is also a conservative politician who um, actually advocates against um, some LGBTQ issues, which is, I don't know how you um, balance those two things uh, in, the, in yourself as an individual. Um, she's, she's a Trump supporter, for example which is neither here nor there, but uh, I think that's a bit of a complexity. I think as with all things, um, it's important to raise awareness, right? So it's important for people to know uh, what gender diversity is, how common it is, um, what some of the challenges are that gender diverse people face. And so having um, sort of celebrities bring that into uh, a higher profile, I, I think on the whole is beneficial. Um, but again, sometimes, the things, the resources that they have access to are not realistic for all people. Um, and so if they're going to be an advocate, they also need to be an advocate for sort of helping uh, people who don't have the resources that they have navigate uh, the systems that they need to navigate. And that may involve um, being politically active. And, and some um, gender diverse advocates have been excellent political advocates. Um, and so I think like with most things, as the profile gets raised a little bit, uh, on the whole, it's probably beneficial, but it also uh, brings to light uh, very active pushback and very active um, transphobia uh, that that becomes more prominent and more um, vocalized as well. So it, I, I think on the whole, it's beneficial, um, but it also can make people a little bit more of a target because while this may be something that many individuals just never gave much thought to, uh, now it's part of the culture wars um, and, and uh, people have strong feelings about it, even if they themselves have no personal experience um, with a gender diverse individual, they're going to have strong opinions about um, what a gender diverse individual um, should have available to them or, or you know, how they should behave. So I think it's important that people are aware of gender diversity, um, but I do think it's a challenging time for people who are gender diverse to navigate that, uh, because while the allyship is more um, visible, so is the um, the pushback, and 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 uh, we see that in things like um, mainly in the U.S., but I, I wouldn't be surprised if this comes here. Um, you know, states uh, enacting bathroom laws, legislating what bathrooms people can use. Um, uh, currently, the the flavor of the week seems to be advocating uh, against gender diverse individuals participating in sport. Uh, and so I think as it becomes more prominent, uh, so does the pushback. And so it, it's a challenging time for all people uh, on either side of the issue <laughs> to be involved in this. Um, but hopefully, as with many things, um, those who are on the right side of history, who advocate for um, human rights and and uh, to treat all people as as humans with dignity, um, will eventually prevail. Yeah, there's actually a real heartwarming story today in the CBC about uh, 
one of the Canadian uh, women in the um, whitewater canoeing events uh, was talking about her uh, transgender father, she still calls dad, uh, who has uh, come out as a trans woman, uh, and they are at the Olympic Games as a um, uh, referee or you know some somebody who's you know kind of keeping track of uh, uh, of people within the uh, the races themselves. Any final thoughts or take home messages that clinicians should consider regarding sex and gender and how it influences people's experience of and access to healthcare? Well. I think what I would say is any healthcare provider out there who um, thinks that they can ignore this issue and, and just not be involved uh, is, is probably kidding themselves. Um, certainly, gender diversity is more common than I think we've ever recognized before. And I think that a big part of that reason is because it's becoming at least a little bit more socially acceptable for people to um, change their gender identity or, or to go through a gender transition. Um, but, you know, it's estimated that as much as one to two percent of the population is gender diverse in some way. Um, and so if you're a healthcare provider and you think that you can avoid providing care to one to two percent of the population, that's that's just not going to be possible for you. Um, and so I think it's really important for healthcare providers to educate themselves on this, even if they themselves don't see a role for providing gender affirming health care, at the very least recognizing within their own profession and the, the care that they do provide, um, you know, how to be respectful towards gender diverse patients, how to um, acknowledge their existence and some of the unique challenges that those patients might face in accessing healthcare. Um, you know, again, even if you're not somebody who's going to be prescribing hormones or gen doing gender affirming surgery, uh, recognizing that, you know, the next patient to walk into your emergency department may be gender diverse, the next person uh, to come into your cardiology clinic may be gender diverse. And so it, it's important for you to at least um, have a basic understanding of these concepts and uh, a basic way of uh, ensuring that you're providing um, respectful care to patients and um, not uh, making it harder for them uh, to access care uh, or, you know, making it harder for them to trust in the healthcare system. So I think that it behooves all healthcare professionals to get at least a baseline level of education on these topics. Um, and then, you know, for anybody who's listening, who is in the practice of obstetrics and gynecology or reproductive healthcare, uh, it can be a really rewarding part of your practice. And so I would just encourage everybody to at least give some thought to um, how you might be able to incorporate this into your practice. Maybe your experience is similar to mine where you're seeing patients through a, a gynecology clinic, but recognizing that um, the reason they're seeing you is actually because of their gender uh, and their need for menstrual suppression or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and it just, dive in a little bit because it's really, really rewarding as a healthcare provider to offer support to people who are going through a really important time in their lives. And, and they're so grateful and you just see people blossom, you know, they come from, um, you know, a place where they've, they've been feeling very poorly about themselves. They've had a lot of uh, distress or dysphoria around the body that they're living in or the, the functions of that body like menstruation. And if you can help them even a small amount, 
uh, you just see the, the improvement it makes in their quality of life and, and it can be very rewarding as the healthcare providers. So um, they certainly encourage people to explore this further. Um, and again, if you're in Ontario or even if you're not in Ontario, um, there are great resources available through Rainbow Health Ontario that I highly recommend, uh, but also the uh, World Professional Association for Transgender Health is an important resource uh, if you're looking for more information. We will put links to some of these resources in the podcast uh, notes for people to, uh, to access. I want to thank our guests and those involved in producing this podcast. If you have any suggestions for topics or people we should speak with, please contact the SOGC at info at SOGC.com. Until the next time, I'm Graham Smith. Be safe.